My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Welcome back to the Coffin Fellows Podcast. Today, we are joined by Sujay Jaswa from WonderCo. Sujay, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. This is so awesome. I'm thrilled for this because there's so many things to dive into with you. You have such an incredible background when we're talking about the human dynamics and talent environments in venture. Uh, let me just do a little bit of bragging about you first. So Sujay is the co-founder and managing partner of WonderCo. Uh, previous to WonderCo, he was at Dropbox, where he created and led the company's global business and finance organizations, uh, which included all customer-facing functions, finance, corporate and business development, and business operations. Previous to that, Sujay was a principal at NEA Associate, or NEA, which is New Enterprise Associates, where he was closely involved in investments in Workday, Cloudflare, and Playdom. He's done so many different things. He also is from an educational background, got an AB in economics and a certificate in finance from Princeton University, and also an MBA from Harvard Business School. And on top of all that, uh, Sujay is a Coffin Fellow from Class 13. Sujay, you have an incredible background, and we'll definitely dive into some of the areas that we mentioned here, but tell us first about WonderCo. WonderCo is a unique entity. I'd love for you to just tell the, the listeners about that. Yeah, so Wonder, we set up WonderCo in 2016, and the original conception was to create a holding company around uh, technology and new media. And the reason for that construct, like a, like a holding company instead of a fund, was that uh, we had felt that funds tended to be shorter term in not necessarily in terms of legality, but in terms of uh, mentality, because most people in the fund business, especially if you're starting a fund from scratch, you know, your objective in fund one is to be in a position to, to go raise fund two and then fund three. And you're thinking about the evolution of the businesses that you invest in in fund one with an eye to fund two and three, which uh, isn't necessarily the right thing for the businesses. I'm not saying it's the wrong thing, but isn't necessarily the right thing. So that was that was the first part of it that that was kind of unique. The second thing is that you know all of us really liked operating in addition to investing. We thought of ourselves as operator investors, and one of the areas where we felt you know was there was a really big open-ended opportunity was you know for companies that were not your you know your rocket ship kind of companies. Many of them have difficulty accessing the private capital markets. And what we felt was perhaps we could buy those companies and turn them into, uh, you know, this isn't that humble, but maybe with our operating experience and networks and, and, and capital, we could turn them into more kind of, you know, tier one Silicon Valley looking companies. And so what we do at WonderCo is actually two different things. You know, we do standard early stage and growth investing and have had a number of really exciting companies uh, come out of that portfolio. And, you know, in those companies, we, we try to be helpful, but we also just try not to be in anyone's way. So we're there for the entrepreneurs wherever, wherever they need us. 
uh, some folks use us heavily and some folks, you know, use us as sounding boards from time to time. But what we, where we really get hands-on is in these companies that we own, which we call venture buyouts. And in those cases, we're entrepreneurs ourselves. And so we don't just have kind of operating experience from five or 10 or 15 years ago. We actually have operating experience from today and yesterday because we're, we're responsible uh, for these companies that we're the majority shareholder in uh, every, every day of the week. And so what's the, the breakdown of kind of how you spend your time at WonderCo between the standard early stage and growth investing and also the venture buyouts? If you look at the portfolio construction, I would say it's, a, it's around 50% buyout, 30% growth, and you know, 10% early stage. And then we actually had, an, we had a bucket for incubations, uh, which we've done two of. Uh, one of them uh, is infamous, uh, called, called Quibi. Uh, another is looking like it could be an unbelievable generational kind of company in a company called Twingate. So uh, that's, that's the rough breakdown. Amazing. How did you come up with this idea? What, what was this? I mean, you were at Dropbox. Uh, I assume you knew uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. What, what, was the, what was the kind of the impetus for starting this? When I, uh, when I was at NEA, I actually loved uh, venture capital investing. I thought, it, I, I thought it was really fun. It was really rewarding intellectually. Uh, I loved meeting interesting people and I loved being around entrepreneurs. And we can talk, I mean, if you're interested, I can share a lot more about my entrepreneurial history because I actually grew up in Silicon Valley with a, an entrepreneur for a father. Definitely um, but I, I love being around entrepreneurs. I think that in many ways they make the world, at least the business world go. And, 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 and it's fun for me to be around them. So I, I loved venture investing. Um, the reason I left NEA in 2010 was uh, one of um, the companies I was, uh, I was an investor and a, and a board observer in as you know, kind of a principal in NEA was a company called Playdom, um, which Disney bought you know, nine months after we invested in the company for, for six or $700 million. And that the, back then that was a relatively big number, right. and, and now six no, now it's you know whatever. But back back in 2010 that was a big deal, and the and the CEO who is this insanely charismatic leader did a you know kind of like a, a, a closing thing with all the Disney execs and the and the company which was like four or five hundred employees at the time, and he called me and he said, hey Sujay, you should come to this come to this like party that we're doing, and he gets up in front of the large group and and gives just an insanely great speech about. What the, what the team had accomplished together. And then he proceeded to thank five people at the end of his speech. He thanked the four founders and me. Wow. And what was interesting was that should have been an awesome moment for me, but I felt imposter syndrome at a really crazy level um, because I felt like I hadn't actually done anything to deserve being thanked at this moment. And that was kind of when I knew I had to go jump in the arena and, and do something entrepreneurial of my own because I, I didn't like that feeling. I, I felt like I had to go and earn it. And so um, that was ultimately why I left, uh, why I left NEA. And so anyways, long, long-winded answer to your question. But for me, what WonderCo is, is it gets to be the best of both worlds where I get to do investments in entrepreneurs that I think are spectacular. And we've, like I said, been really lucky to to have a, a quite a large number of those. But on the other hand, I get to continue to be an entrepreneur myself and so do, so do our partners. And we get to, we get to you know, build things which wouldn't exist with, without us. And, and that's really rewarding as well. And by the way, there's a synergy here, which is that um, the things that we learn from our, our, our you know, venture and growth investments, we can apply to the companies where we're the largest shareholder and the vice versa is that we're continuously 
deeply involved in everything from customer acquisition to product development and so on and so forth, and can apply those kind of learnings to, uh, to the entrepreneurs that we invest in if they want it. Such an amazing setup that you have with WonderCo, so unique in its application. Um, I do want to dive in really quick to something you said about that moment at the, at the party. You know, you know, it takes a lot of self-awareness to kind of recognize that you felt imposter syndrome in that point to say, gosh, I don't feel like I deserved being mentioned with some of the other co-founders. You know, with, uh, with a degree of humility here, I would be curious, what do you think made him uh, mention you with the other four co-founders? What was it that, was it the relationship that you built with the CEO? Was it some of the things that you did to support, you know, them? What, what was the, what do you think, what do you think the reason was that he mentioned you? It's a good question. I never asked him. Um, you know, my my guess, I mean, venture capital provides a really important role for startups, right? Like the capital itself is insanely valuable for any of these companies. And so when when you as a VC bet on an entrepreneur and then don't make their lives miserable afterwards, they'll never they'll never forget how much gratitude they have. Right. So they I, I think that I think my guess is that was that was the bulk of it. I mean, you know, John and I were very, very close. Uh, he had asked if I'd be interested in joining the company. Um, uh, you know, I would have made made a, a little packet there if I had taken his taken his offer. But but I think you know, truthfully, I'm I'm pretty confident that the bulk of what what I brought to the table was money. Well, I love the self awareness and the exploration there. So let's go to your your formative experiences. And you mentioned that you grew up in Silicon Valley. Uh, entrepreneur as a father, love entrepreneurship and love kind of the journey of building things. Tell us about your childhood. Like, tell, I'd love to learn more about your mother and your father and your upbringing. What was that like? Yeah, so uh, both of my parents are computer scientists uh, from Bombay. And uh, my dad moved to Canada in 1976 to get his master's in electrical engineering. And uh, he and my mom got married a couple of years later, uh, three years later. And my dad uh, at that time was kind of a junior engineer at General Electric in Daytona, Florida. So that, that's actually where I was born. And uh, a number of his classmates from IIT were, were moving to Silicon Valley. So in 1981, or roughly that time frame, uh, my parents got in their car and drove, to, drove west. My dad got a job at Intel uh, in that window where Intel was going through that crazy transition from being a, a memory company to a microprocessor company. And it's hard to remember, you know, no one remember this right now, but they actually went through over the next five years, something like six rounds of layoffs. And uh, my dad was a product manager on the 286, if I remember correctly. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's nuts. And in the sixth round of layoffs, my dad got laid off. So it's like 1985 or so timeframe, 1986. And to put it in perspective, my parents didn't didn't have any money. You know, they were they were immigrants, and um, India definitely wasn't a strong economy back then. Uh, and so my dad got a job at a company called Chips and Technologies, which was sort of a high flying ish company back then. And it was kind of an interesting experience because um, he became the product manager on a new product initiative that Chips and Technologies had, which was to develop uh, a chipset, a PC chipset. So that was kind of the thing that brought the microprocessor together with the graphic processor and everything else. Uh, long story short, uh, they built that business up in a really successful way over the next three years. And he got a meeting with the CEO and he was really excited because he assumed it would be a big promotion for him, that kind of thing. And at that meeting, the CEO told him that he had done a great job and that he was now going to bring someone in who had experience running, running businesses at scale to run that division. And my dad should go back and come up with the next 
you know, next new chipset division or come up with a new idea wow. for the company. And my dad was devastated. Uh, and, and, you know, it was interesting. It's interesting to, to think through all the things that people think about with diversity now, because I, I think if you were to ask my dad, he would tell you um, that he was, he is a hundred percent confident that if he was not Indian, if he was white, that that would not have happened. He, he feel like he felt pretty strongly that back then the Valley had a bias that Indians were fine engineers and product people, but they weren't capable of running a business or running sales or things like that. And so my, my dad and three engineers left and they started a company called Opti. This is 1988. Uh, they could not get a dollar of venture capital financing. It was him and three Taiwanese engineers. Uh, so they bootstrapped the company. It went public three years later. And by 1995, it was the largest PC chipset maker in the world with 40% market share. Uh, it was wild for me as a kid because, you know, we went from obviously not, not being, you know, from being solidly middle class to all of a sudden uh, quite, quite well off. And, you know, we go to all over the world and, you know, he'd go to a hotel and he'd see a computer in the, you know, in, in like the, the hotel office or whatever. And, and he'd jump on his knees and go and open up the PC and pull out the, the chipset that was an Opti chipset. Oh, yeah, it was really, it was really, I have great memories of that part of it. But um, the, I also saw the flip side of it, which is that, you know, until that point, he was a pretty involved dad. Like, you know, he was the manager of my, you know, little league baseball team. And, you know, he, you know, he was a coach of my little league baseball team, that kind of thing. And then I don't really remember my dad from my childhood post that. Like, I mean, obviously I have, I have memories, you know, something, you know, but I don't have, like, we didn't have like a daily dynamic because he was in uh, Taiwan, Japan, Korea, two weeks out of every month uh, because that's where the customers were. Uh, a lot of the customers were. Uh, that I saw that side of entrepreneurship too, where it was like a humongous sacrifice, not just for the entrepreneur, but for the whole family. And then in 1996, uh, he got into um, sort of, he went sideways with, with a couple of his founder, uh, co-founders and he got booted from the company, which was you know fairly devastating for him. Six months later, he started a company called Selectica, which is an enterprise software company. So his first, you know, he, he came out of the, the semiconductor world. Um, Opti was you know, kind of one of the first fabulous semi-companies in that way and ended up going into enterprise software because my dad always likes doing new things. He doesn't like doing the same thing over and over again. That company, Bill Draper, who was the founder of Sutter Hill originally and, and, and at that point was uh, Draper International and became Draper Richards, uh, was his first investor. And Bill uh, was just an awesome, awesome, awesome partner to my dad. And along the next three or four years, uh, there were tons of ups and downs. Um, the two large competitors have been funded by like kind of the top tier venture capitalists in the Valley, uh, you know, Kleiner and Sequoia and all these guys. And, you know, Selectica wasn't, but they were starting to win in the marketplace. And they went out to raise their Series C, which was going to be kind of the pre-IPO round. And they hired Alex Brown to do the, um, uh, to do the financing. And they went and met a lot of investors. And Alex Brown, and they totally whiffed. And Alex Brown came back and did a report to the board that the CEO, my dad, was unfundable, which is why the fundraise couldn't get wow. done. And so Bill at this point wasn't on the board. His partner, uh, Robin Richards, was. Bill got word of this in advance of the board meeting, and he drove down to attend this board meeting. And so the, the bankers present that. And before anybody else in the boardroom says anything, Bill, as this kind of total legend of Silicon Valley, pipes up and says, well, it sounds like someone needs to be fired. And that's the investment banker and, and protecting my dad. And a year later, the company went public at a $5 billion valuation. 
uh, and was the biggest returner in Bill's first fund, uh, Bill's first, you know, in Draper International's first fund. And that was obviously, a, you know, both amazing and fun, but, but also, uh, you know, I think it, it shows you what entrepreneurship is really hard. Like, I think that's the piece of it that people forget right now. And I think a lot of people approach it casually, but nothing, I don't think there's been a single good or great company that's been created that doesn't have many, many moments along the journey that where things feel hopeless. The thing about great entrepreneurs is that they persevere. And the thing about great venture capitalists is they understand that nobody's perfect, that no entrepreneur is perfect. And when an entrepreneur, in my, in my assessment, when an entrepreneur has both perseverance and kind of vision around the market and the ability to keep the team together, the venture capitalist, in my, in my assessment, should back, should back the entrepreneur, regardless of what outside you know, folks are saying. That's, that's my view. And it's, you know, it's obviously a pretty personal view and, and, you know, anecdote, you know, the plural, you know, you know, the, the plural of anecdote isn't necessarily data. So, <laughs> so, you know, it is, it is, it is obviously highly, you know, life is, you know, you, all of us get pretty biased by uh, a limited set of anecdotal experiences, but that's my, that's, that's kind of the, how, kind of how I was, I've, I've seen the kind of evolution of the Valley and, and, and kind of how I see my and others role in it. The plural of antidote isn't necessarily data. That's, that's a great one. I love that. Never heard that. Your dad sounds like an amazing individual. Um, tell me about your mom. Uh, what did you, what were some of the things you learned from your mom as well? Yeah. Uh, well, there's actually my, my, there's something we can talk about my, about my dad around this organization tie, which is sort of forgotten in the Valley now, but played a huge role in, in helping Indians become sort of equal participants in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. My mom is you know, I mean, really until I met my wife is the person that I, I have been closest to in my whole life. Like I said, she was a computer scientist. Funnily enough, uh, until my brother was born in 1988, she actually had a higher salary than my dad. So that that I find really, really amusing uh, in retrospect. My, my mom, when my brother was born, you know, I was pretty like she at least what she tells me is that I was like unhappy going to daycare and all that sort of thing. And and my brother was, uh, who's, who's, who's a star, uh, was, was a, you know, he was, he was a challenging infant. And my mom woke up one day and said, look, I'm, these kids are the priority in life and, and I'm going to, I'm going to focus on them, which actually put a ton of financial pressure on my dad because all of a sudden, you know, the majority of the income in the household was about to disappear. Um, so, so yeah, my mom, my mom is, uh, uh, nothing if not tenacious, focused, family first, absolutely rigorous about uh, making sure that her kids achieve their potential. But uh, more than that, are like happy, you know, are happy, good people. So, so she's a she's really special. Really special uh, upbringing that you had, and special individuals to to raise you. You know, you talked, Sujay, you talked about how entrepreneurship is really hard, and we probably don't talk about this enough. Talk to me about, you know, you experienced this when you were, you were an associate um, at Cisco on the corp dev team there, and you jumped into one of the portfolio companies there. And that was, that was a pretty formative experience for you because you learned a lot of things there that, that maybe you didn't learn when you were doing the diligence and kind of making the investment decision. What, tell us about that experience. Yeah. So the company, so it's a, it's a funny story as I, as I think about it, because the company was called Cinema Now. It was a spin out of Lionsgate Films. And it was actually the first company to have the rights to distribute 
major motion pictures on the internet. Uh, and so, you know, between that and, and Quibi, I should probably get out of the movie streaming business. But, <laughs> but the um, the interesting thing, and I think what you're referring to, is that, you know, at, at Cisco, you know, we, we invested in the company. We had a point of view on it. Uh, my boss at Cisco at the time is a guy named Samit Mehta, who's a phenomenal investor. He's actually was the lead, uh, seat, led the seed round and kind of participated the whole way through in, in Sentinel One. Uh, and so I think he, I, I think it's over a billion dollar return for him. He's an awesome, just an awesome guy, an awesome investor. So Samit and I did this investment. The thesis was, you know, media is going online. Obviously, it's much better for consumers to to be able to download this stuff and watch it on devices than it is to have to go to Blockbuster. And so this makes sense. And because of its heritage with Lionsgate, it, it's got all these rights that are unusual and hard to capture. And then you get into it, and then you start realizing, oh wow. All the things that you thought were true from the board deck, well, they're technically true, but organizations, they're like people, they're complicated. You know, if, some, if you read someone's resume, you have a point of view on them, but once you get to know them well, it's almost like the resume doesn't matter. There's a whole different set of perspectives you have on the person. I think the same thing is true in companies. When you're on the inside of these companies, they're totally different than what you think they are as an investor, board member, or anything else. And so that for me has been like a like a kind of a grounding insight for everything I've done since, which is that I don't when I make investments, I don't actually assume that no matter how much diligence I've done, I don't assume I really know anything. The thing I try to do a lot more now, and I used to do a lot less then, is I, I really try to understand the founder and I really try to understand the market dynamics and everything else I view as check the box to make sure I'm not missing something. But it's really, you know, that I view that all in the kind of most as mostly noise. At the end of the day, you're betting, to me, what I like to bet on on the back of that is rapidly evolving markets that are potentially big. You know, in, in many ways, it doesn't even have to be big right now, but it might be big in the future with entrepreneurs that will just keep figuring it out. If, if you get that combination, which is unusual and rare, like I, I'll make the bet, everything else I just don't assume will uh, will work out. And anytime I, by the way, anytime I go away from this rule, I tend to regret it. Like a lot of times a mistake that I'll make is I'll see amazing LT, you know, unit economics, LTV to CACs. And I'll say, oh, wow, if they can just 10X this, this will be a gigantically valuable business. But of course, the process of 10Xing anything is really hard. Usually actually the process of maintaining LTV to CAC in an existing channel is really hard because competitors come through. And so- I think all those things are like, you know, it's important to check the box on that stuff. But what I really learned about it is that you don't know a lot. And so you got to focus on the couple of things that really matter. Yeah. And so you kept focusing on a couple of things that really matter led you to a next stage in your process where you said, you know, I really like VC, but I also really like the operating side. And that led you to jump into Dropbox. Why don't you tell us about what were the, you know, kind of the decision points for making that leap? And then, well, first, what are the decision points making that leap? Then we'll go into some of the, the things that you learned while you're at Dropbox. So, I, you know, I'm pretty intuitive. And so uh, around the couple of things that I just described. And so what happened with Dropbox is, you know, I was, I was aware of it because they had just come out of Y Combinator. I think Sequoia had done the A. And Sequoia was, a, you know, was, was probably still at that time, like the great VC firm. But it wasn't the way it is today, where it's just unbelievable where, where they're at. Uh, but they were, obviously, they were still amazing back then. But, you know, we, we would pay attention to it, but it wasn't like the worship there is today. I don't, at least not, that's not how I remember it. Uh, long story short, I kind of met Drew um, at a Starbucks on Market Street. 
and we became Facebook friends, but you know, we weren't friends or anything like that. And one, but I was trying to, you know, trying to stay close to him as a potential venture investor. Uh, one day he posted on Facebook, does anyone want to carpool to this concert, which was the bridge school benefit at Shoreline Amphitheater. Uh, I hit him back right away on, on Facebook. I was like, Hey, let's, let's do this thing. And so uh, we ended up carpooling together, you know, especially back then he was really careful about sharing anything about the business. So I didn't, I didn't actually know anything or learn anything. I, I had so much fun with him that the next morning I woke up and I, you know, I had that Platum experience that happened like two months earlier, maybe, maybe like even less, maybe a month earlier. And I just called him on Sunday morning and he picked up mainly because I think he thought I forgot my keys or something. And uh, I was like, Hey man, I thought about this morning. Why don't I come join you? And he was like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I thought, I, you know, I, I wanted, I want to get in the game uh, on the entrepreneurship entrepreneurial side. And I like what you're up to. And I, I, I like you and I'll do anything. I don't really care what the job is. I'll just, I'll just jump in. And he was like, wow. Uh, okay. Let's talk. And you know, a month later I was in the company. So, or maybe, maybe, maybe two months later, you know, six weeks later, something like that. So here's a nutty thing. The day I joined, I didn't know how much revenue they had. I didn't know how many users they had. I didn't actually know how many employees they had. I didn't know, you know, how much cash they had in the bank. I didn't actually know anything. That in a way was, you know, might've been insane, but on the other side, like that should show, I think the level of the conviction that I had in the concept and in Drew. Because, you know, that I, I like, I think, you know, vision and entrepreneur first and, and what I felt was that the potential from where that company was sitting, you know, where the product was sitting at that point was huge. I love Drew and I felt like he and I fit together really well, as well as Arash, who was um, the other, the other co-founder and CTO, and that we had like a real chemistry that would be that would be fun and might potentially make that vision come real. You know, when you talked about entrepreneurs that are able to adapt to rapidly evolving markets and just keep on figuring it out, is that what you saw in Drew? I mean, when you join and you don't know much about the company, I mean, clearly anybody that looks at, at the company today goes, wow, that looks like it could have been a no brainer. But back then it wasn't. Uh, so, and, and as you said, when you joined, you didn't know really anything about the company. You didn't know the revenues, didn't know how many uh, customers they had, didn't know even how many employees they had. What was it about Drew besides just the what seems clear in the chemistry that you had carpooling to a concert together? But but what was it about him that is you know maybe something that now informs how you look at other entrepreneurs? Uh, in addition, like maybe double click on this idea of founders that are able to just keep on figuring it out. You know, first of all, the thing that I have learned over time is that there's not a lot of commonality between entrepreneurs. So when people think about pattern matching. I think the biggest mistakes in venture capital are when investors over pattern match or they pattern match the wrong things, right? So by way of example, you know, no one would have invested in asset heavy companies um, 10 years ago, right? Semiconductors were over like, you know, kind of the intersection of computer science and biology felt like totally foreign to people. You know, the consumer internet era felt, you know, over besides social media, all of these things that were truisms, though, that was, that was how you missed the biggest markets of the next 10 years. Yeah. And so I, I have, a, I'm much more simplistic than that. I say, okay, so what are the things that I believe are true among all entrepreneurs? 
And I, I really believe it's only one thing at this point in time, which is perseverance. Like, I don't think there, I, I think there are other things that matter for every given opportunity. So I'm not saying perseverance is the only thing that matters. But the one thing I know that matters no matter what is perseverance. And so the only question I asked Drew, and I don't know that I was thinking about this rationally at the time, but when, when he gave me an offer, so here's the crazy thing. I didn't negotiate the offer. I didn't, I mean, it sounds completely insane in retrospect. I asked him only one question, which was, under what conditions do you sell the company? And he said, I never want to sell the company. And I was like, okay, then I'm in. Literally, that's how the conversation went. Because, you know, so seven or eight years later, um, uh, or maybe five or six years later, Vinod Kosa and I were having a conversation. And he said something to me, you know, that, that, that I've not forgotten. I think about a fair bit, which is in the history of every great company, there are multiple moments when they make an irrational decision not to sell the company, where the acquisition offer or proposal is so much greater than the real value of the business that it is wildly irrational for the entrepreneur to turn the money down. So the takeaway, which, which by the way, if you think about all the great companies, that's true. So the takeaway is you have to be wildly irrational to build something great. It's not the only thing you have to be, but you do have to be wildly irrational. And there's good and bad that comes with that, right? There are plenty of companies that should have sold that didn't, right? Like along the way. And so, but, but to do something truly spectacular, you have to be irrational. Uh, and for me, I had a, I, I, you know, Scott Sandell, who, who, who runs NEA now, and I are very close. Scott is, you know, one of the most spectacular investors who's, you know, his, as much as he is respected, he's, I don't even think he's given as much credit for, for who he is. I mean, I've, I've seen him put two and two together on things that were so unexpected and wild and it would just blow my mind. You know, Dick Kramlick, who founded NEA, uh, and I are still very close. And Mark Perry, who's a senior partner who hired me at a business school, are very close. Like I, I had an awesome uh, experience at NEA. And for me to leave that firm, which I, I, I loved, I love that firm. It was because I wanted to do something special. And by the way, you know, it, it, you know, sitting here in 2021, I, I do feel like we left chips on the table at Dropbox. Like I think, I think we could have been a hundred billion dollar company and, and, and probably should have been in many ways. And so that, that's definitely motivating for me now, but I wanted a shot at it. And I knew that Drew had the psychology that would, you know, give him and the company and me a shot at it. And, and that's what I wanted. So many important takeaways here and, and things to, to kind of digest around talent environments. And as we talk about the, this framework for being a successful VC or being the best VC you can be in venture, and we talk about this through Coffee Fellows, one of the key pieces we talk about is the human dynamics and talent environments. You've already given us so much to think about as it relates to this with thinking about the entrepreneur and their journey and what you're looking for in great entrepreneurs. You also did some really unique things. You and the team at Dropbox did some really unique things to be this, this magnet for great talent. Why don't you talk about a little bit there about what, you know, what made Dropbox unique in the way that they thought about talent, mapped out talent, and attracted that talent, and then retained that talent? So we did some things amazingly well, and we obviously made, made mistakes as well. Um, the, the thing that I think we did, um, and this was true across the board, that made us a pretty unique company uh, and we might have overdone it, which might have led to some mistakes as well. But but we we really focused on thinking about things from first principles. So as an example, when it comes to talent, one of the things that I pretty firmly believe is true is that 
companies that cannot grow from within in terms of grow leadership from within inevitably become companies that attract relatively mediocre talent. Companies that are known for hiring the best, putting them in positions to maximize their talent, giving them rapid promotion and career growth opportunities, those companies, you know, they get they get really great people. And 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 as they get known for getting great people, there's kind of a there's like a virtuous, you know, a virtuous cycle that that happens where other great people want to join because of the great people that were there before them in college or grad school or or um, Google or McKinsey or whatever uh, went there. And so being, you know, so thinking about it that way, you know, you, you sit back and you say, okay, well, what are the companies that, you know, in 2010, so taking 10 or 2011, so 10 years ago, were attracting amazing people out of college? Well, you had Google at the time, which, which had started to attract really amazing people into their APM program, their associate product manager program. You still had lots of people who wanted to go to, you know, Goldman Sachs or McKinsey or places like that. And so something that really popped in my head is I'm like, wait a minute, Google's like a high growth company doing like wildly exciting things. Goldman Sachs and McKinsey are relatively slow growth businesses, you know, and they're doing okay, you know, they're doing interesting things, but they're definitely not changing the world. Why do so many talented people go to these companies, which are like 50, hundred years old in 2011? That's like a, that was weird to me. And, and of course, I was a person who had gone to McKinsey out of college. So what, like, what was it about it? And it was, they had a reputation for hiring the best, for developing them in a way that made them attractive, you know, in, in whatever they were going to do in their career. And I said, okay, well, that's actually pretty interesting. If you can hire amazing people and put them in a position to do great things, that will result in more amazing people joining your company, even when you are a slow growth, born, you know, kind of more stodgy, more old school kind of company. Well, that's that was like an interesting insight. So if we're trying to build a generational company, we need to focus on this now because you know when you're a hot, sexy company, you can get great people to come for you, come uh, come join you. But when you're like a you know a normal company, if you don't have that reputation already established, it's over. You're never getting that chance again. And so I was really keen to make sure. We had programs, we branded it, we did all these things to ensure that we had that kind of system and brand and network effect going, even from the early days. And, to, and one of the, one of, you know, we, and then we did lots of things to, to convince folks to join us. So on the engineering side, we had an amazing internship program where we'd hire incredible, incredible kids to come be interns. And we would actually have a parents' day where we would almost like showcase the company, you know, we'd pay for their parents to fly in, their families to fly in, and we'd showcase what the company was doing, what the interns were working on, what cool projects were going, the stability, the you know, strength of the company. Because if you're a parent of an 18-year-old or 20-year-old, you don't want them joining a startup that you've barely heard of. You want them going to some well-known company where they're going to build a career. Well, we wanted to show them that this was not a risk their kids were taking. It was actually like an accelerator. And that they were going to get the benefits of a giant company with all the benefits of a small company as well. And so we did those days. Those, those became kind of legendary. We did, you know, these hack weeks, which had crazy cool things come out of. So we basically built a whole system around this idea of attracting talent. You know, then my philosophy uh, on the business side of the business, you know, kind of we had, we had two halves of the company. We had engineering product design and we had the business half. And the business half actually included 
certain functions which tend to be known as product functions now. So, you know, data science, analytics, monetization, you know, growth, things like that, all reported to the business side of the company back then. You know, we would do things that, you know, my, my whole philosophy. So basically, like I teach a class at Stanford on scaling people with, uh, with John Lilly, who was CEO of Mozilla and a general partner at Greylock for a long time, you know, a board member of Figma and other great companies. And one of the things I talk about is fairness is an incredibly important thing, especially at this time in our society. But the hard thing about fairness is fairness requires data. And collecting and analyzing data requires time. So almost by definition, making more fair decisions means you are making slower decisions, especially when it comes to people, right? So for example, let's say you as a manager see something in someone on the team and you say, wow, I'm going to put this person in a bigger job. And that person hasn't necessarily earned it. You haven't you know, done all the evaluations and 360 reviews and systematic modeling of their, of their what they've accomplished and not, and you're just taking a bet on them. And when you take a bet on somebody, almost by definition, the people you don't take a bet on for that gig are going to be upset about it because they wanted that. You know, many of them might've wanted that gig also, and they will accuse you of being unfair. And so you have to make a decision. Do you just take the bet and be okay with being you know, perceived as somewhat unfair or do you make them, you know, kind of go through, you know, you and the person have to jump through a bunch of hoops to prove that it is fair, then communicate the basis of it really effectively and thoroughly and know that even then people are still going to think it was a little unfair, but at least you have like, you know, a file effectively to, to point to. That's a choice, you know, that, that's not an easy one, especially in today's environment. My view was speed is the only advantage a small company has over a big company. And we were going to move fast. And I was going to, I was going to throw people in the deep end of the swimming pool if I thought they could swim. And by the way, some, some folks didn't swim. But for the folks who swam, they have gone on to do totally spectacular things. I mean, it is, it is wild uh, when, I, when I look at the crew um, on the drop, you know, from the Dropbox business team, like what they're all up to. You know, you've got uh, you know, Kyle Parrish is off running sales at Figma. You know, you've got Sam Taylor running sales at Loom. You've got Peter on running sales at Twingate. You've got, I mean, you've got so many of the folks on the finance side that are, that are off CFOs or, or number twos in finance running strategic finance. You've got tons of former venture capitalists, both Sarah Adler, uh, who ran Corp Dev is founder of Wave Capital. You've got Joueja uh, Lan, uh, who was running corporate strategy, who founded Basis Set Ventures. She's raised 300 million bucks. Um, tons of other, you know, Ajay is a general, Ajay Vashi was, uh, was, uh, ran finance uh, and then became the CFO to Dropbox Public, is now a general partner at, over at IVP uh, and on and on. I mean, it's, it's kind of wild uh, what's happened with the team. All, you know, Oliver Jay is chief business officer at Asana. I mean, I can go on and on. It's crazy uh, how many of these folks have gone on to do spectacular Amazing things. Group. And I think a big part of that is that they didn't have sort of very fixed careers, you know, like where it was like they were hired to do sales, you know, as an AE. And then two years later, they were like a senior AE. And then four years later, they were a manager of AEs and so on and so forth. Instead, I moved people around all the time when I saw some potential in them and, and where I thought their potential and the need of a new role intersected, I would just put them in the job. And, you know, I'd say 80% of the time they rose up to it and, and crushed it. And as a result, their careers accelerated so much faster than if they were kind of on a standard kind of, you know, promotion path that most companies have. And, and I think it was a, a, a huge advantage for Dropbox that all these folks were doing amazing things uh, relatively early.
I love that perspective on talent. And, you know, if I double click on this for a minute and talk about this, this idea that you know, speed is the only advantage that smaller companies have on larger companies. And, you know, while fairness is incredibly important, which we all agree with, you're saying that it's, it requires data and time and by definition, almost by definition, it makes it a slower decision-making process. How do you balance now or what would you, um, what advice would you give to early stage founders, to those building teams, to those that are investors when they're thinking about how to implement and maintain both fairness and diversity and equity and inclusion in this fast paced world where small companies, one of the main advantages they have is speed. How do you balance the two and how do you implement those? Here's, here's what I share with the, at the Stanford class. When you are starting a company and you're hiring your first 10 people, you have no reason for people to join your company, right? You haven't really accomplished anything, you know, and, and what ends up happening is for the vast majority of companies, the first kind of five or 10 people who are usually the most key people in the history of a company are joining because they know you from before and they're joining because of some belief in you. So what that means is that if you want your company to be diverse, you need to have a diverse social and business network before you start the company. If you want the key people in your company, because at the end of the day, the first you know five or 10 or 15 people will have moral authority at your company forever, as long as they're there. If you want that group of people to be diverse, the only reason they're, they're going to be diverse is if you've got diversity in your own life. If you don't, your first five or 10 or 15 people are going to be people that are the people you hang out with, the people that look like you or had the same experience as you, went to the same college as you, whatever, because those are the only people that are going to join you at that early stage of your journey. So yes, like, you know, three years later, when you're a hot company, you can hire a search firm to go get you a diverse person for your board, or, you know, you can go get the right venture capital investor. But if you want to have a truly diverse company, it has to be because you as a human being live diversity. And I think to me, this is the biggest fraud of the way a lot of startups talk about this stuff. If this is the problem with the lack of diversity to me in this whole system is that the social networks of the folks starting companies are not diverse. And as a result, they're not able to build the core of the team in a diverse way from the beginning. And by the way, that's true for all of us. Most of us, the kind of people we hang out with are the people that we know, right? That we went to college with, that have the same common interests as us, that sort of thing. And so I, 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 don't, I just don't think you can solve the problem, you know, five years down the road. And I also don't think that, you, that, that putting the burden on a founder who's, you know, going to run out of money in six months and tell them that their job is to solve diversity for Silicon Valley post, post them starting a company is a realistic or reasonable thing either. They're going to they're, they're be less successful in the pursuit of their, of their startup. The way to solve the problem is, is by society being diverse and for all of us being committed to having diverse social networks, being comfortable, you know, in that, in that way, that that's my belief. You know, it really goes back to your, your statement on first principles, right? That we have to have a group of individuals in our own social networks that is more reflective of society as a whole. If we are not diverse and inclusive in our own social networks before we do any of the things that we do professionally, that it's going to be that much of a larger leap to do it professionally. If it's more ingrained in everything that we do as human beings, that is where we, you know, and if, if we're, our social networks are reflective of what society looks like as a whole, that will lead to diverse teams and whatever organizations that we're building. I, I love that perspective. Yeah, so Jeff, like why else? Let's say you have an idea for a company. 
and you've got the idea, you you own like 75% of the, the equity, you know, you raise $500,000 from friends and family or some other seed investors or whatever. Why would someone join your company for half a percent of the company at that point in time? You don't have a product, you don't have users, you don't have data, you don't have revenue. Why would they join your company? Risk their life and career and the family and everything else on it. They're doing it because of you. Who are the, who are the people that are going to do that because of you at that stage? Almost always, it's people that know you. Absolutely. So Jay, what are you excited about now? What are some of the things that just, you know, when you jump out of bed every morning and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I get to do the things that I do. What are you excited about you know, right now? So, so for me, you know, I, I designed in many ways Wonderco around stuff that I like to do, which is I love, like I said at the beginning, I love hanging out with entrepreneurs. And, you know, if I'm able to invest behind them and their missions, that's, that's great. I, you know, I, I'm excited to do it. I also have set up WonderCo in such a way that, you know, when it comes to working with founders, I get to work with them in the best way possible, which is, you know, just to be supportive. You know, WonderCo's success or failure is not going to be driven by any uh, venture or growth investment. Of course, it can amplify our success for sure, but um, no, no venture or growth deal is going to, you know, torpedo the firm. Uh, so we get to have like a really great dynamic with uh, the founders that, that partner with us. The other half of, of what I get to do is a real blast, which is where we're, you know, what I like to say internally is we're like the founders behind the founders in the companies that we help create. So this is where there's like a founder CEO uh, who's got a big idea and pursuing a big mission. And we kind of create the company with them. And in those cases, um, frequently, you know, I'm the, I'm the chairman of the company and it's their show. You know, they're, they're the ones who are uh, grinding it, you know, every day, but I talk to them multiple times a day usually. And I, I think they would, they would say that I and Chen Li and Jeffrey and, you know, Anthony and, and Lars and our whole crew are, are, are their partners. And we're like, they're almost like they're, you know, like we are like founders behind the founders and we do really cool things for them. And that's really fun because when it works, we really feel like we deserve some of the credit. I don't have that imposter syndrome feeling I had when Platum sold. You know, we really, we really earned a lot of this, uh, a lot of the success um, with, with the entrepreneur. And that's really fun. But by the way, you know, being a founder, so with Wonderco, with the companies, you're going through the roller coaster with them. You know, when journalists would ask me when, you know, Dropbox was a super hot company, what it was like to work there, I'd say, look, for me, every day is a roller coaster. And what I mean by that is at 10 a.m., I think we're going to change the world at you know, 1 p.m., I'm pretty sure we're going to go bankrupt. At 2 p.m., you know, some key person tells me they want to quit. At 3 p.m., some key person decides they want to join the company. At 4 p.m., we get a new customer. You know, and that's every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And by starting Wonderco, I sort of put myself back on that treadmill. I mean, you know, starting an investment firm, uh, which Wonderco is, you know, sort of an investment firm, is actually no, not really different than starting a company. I mean, it really has a lot of the same emotional roller coaster dynamics. I'll tell you, last year when Quibi was going through what it was, that was a tough year for us. You know, it was an especially tough year for Jeffrey, who's, you know, one of the greats of the greats in the history of American business. I mean, he changed all of our lives with what he did at, with Disney and DreamWorks. Uh, and for him to go through such a challenging experience uh, and to rebound from it, and he's working 24 seven on behalf of our companies today. Like that just shows you the kind of character he's got, but boy, it was a hard year for us. And so 
we're, we're, we're grinding the way every entrepreneur grinds and, and I love it. You know, I love it and I, I, I love it and I hate it. And it's the whole, it's the whole package. It's the, it's the joy of the journey. You know, it's so incredible just to hear these, these insights from you as someone that came from, you know, a background where you had, you, you learned tenacity and perseverance from your parents and, and you went through all these different formative experiences to now come to today where you're partnered with individuals, both on your team and also with entrepreneurs that you're investing in that you're just so passionate about serving and focusing on and going through the journey with. I love hearing this story. Uh, you know, my last question for you, Sujay, is, is around Coffin Fellows. You went through the Coffin Fellows program. You're in class 13. What kind of role did Coffin Fellows play in your journey? I don't know if the program is what it was, you know, is, is the way today that it was uh, 12 years ago. But the coolest thing for me about Coffin Fellows, the two coolest things were one is you, you got a network and venture where you were friends as opposed to people who, you know, you ended, might have ended up doing deals with them, but, but really you started as friends, almost like, you know, call it, kind of like, you know, college classmates in a way where you had people who you could collaborate with, get advice from, you know, network with, you know, like all those things that you need in a relatively lonely field. Adventure is a relatively lonely field. You got that sense of community out of Coffin, which is just fabulous. And, and the second thing is you got perspective from all the, the senior folks that would come through and, and talk about their journeys and talk about the, the things that they did and the things they didn't do and the good and the bad. And I, I think for me, it's, it was, it's community is probably the word, if I were to kind of think back to what I just said, it was really a community for me. And I, and I love that. You know, venture is a lonely job. And so having a community makes a huge difference. Sujit Jaswa, so grateful for you being a Coffin Fellow, for being part of the venture community and entrepreneurial community. And and doing the work that you're doing. And thank you for joining us on the Kaufman Fellows Podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. And thanks to all of you at, at Kaufman. You know, the whole venture industry owes a lot to you. So thank you. Appreciate that, man. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. <laughs>